that's the unfortunate part that stares us in the face with all of this as we look at what the technology is, is that there's a real person on the other side of that whose life depends on having that information and having that information be accurate and be fast enough. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and thanks for joining me today. I am Paul Broman, and I'm Scientific Affairs Lead at Illumina. So today in episode 56, we'll be discussing oncology and the role of genomics in tumor profiling. Fundamentally, cancer is a disease of the human genome. It's highly complex and heterogeneous, and it's driven by a multitude of genetic factors. These include DNA mutations that are hereditary, or germline mutations, as well as mutations we acquire throughout life also called somatic mutations. Understanding the mutational profile of a cancer or a tumor can help to guide diagnostic or therapeutic options. Traditionally, pathologists and oncologists have relied on older technologies like PCR or FISH to analyze mutations in individual genes. But more recently, genomics technologies have enabled the analysis of multiple mutations across multiple genes from the same tumor sample. These genomic assays, which are called panels, may provide oncologists a more comprehensive genomic profile of a given tumor. To talk more about this exciting topic, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Rachel Sanborn to the show. Rachel is co-director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at the Providence Cancer Institute in Portland, Oregon. She's also director of the Phase 1 Clinical Trial Program at Providence. Listen to Rachel explain how genomics technologies are transforming oncology. Dr. Rachel Sanborn, I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast today. You are a practicing oncologist, and so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain some of the work you do in oncology with me and with our listeners But before we dive into our discussion today, which is going to be a discussion on cancer biomarkers, on precision oncology, can you just briefly take a few moments and introduce yourself and and let our listeners know what brought you into the field of cancer genomics? I am a thoracic oncologist by training in medical oncology, and that really is what brought me into the field of genomics. So entering the world of a thoracic oncologist back when... There was not yet really an established field in genomics, but that data has really expanded and exploded and impacted patient care over the last 10 to 15 years. Anybody now in thoracic oncology and really in medical oncology in general needs to be involved in the field of genomics because this directly impacts patients with many different types of cancers, expanding the options that we have for treatment. Can you spend a few moments talking about, as an oncologist, how you decide what kinds of information you want to get for your patients, what kinds of technologies you decide to use in analyzing cancer samples, for example? How does that whole process work? 
Well, really, it's an evolving process, and particularly in lung cancer, where there are so many different targetable mutations nowadays, it's something that is always expanding and changing. So in the past, when we would take a look at what we needed to test for, there were only a couple of different genetic mutations that could be spot-checked for a patient with a newly diagnosed lung cancer to identify, say, whether there was an EGFR or an ALK rearrangement that could be treated with a targeted therapy. Nowadays, however, there are so many different mutations that need to be identified. Picking one specific point test in a sequential fashion after others goes through more tissue than you have available and takes more time than you have the luxury of having when you're working with people who have metastatic cancer, who have a short window for which they're able to receive therapy before it might be too late to be able to benefit from a treatment. So the priority as a medical oncologist is to have as broad an informational base as possible as quickly as possible. If you have information at the beginning, sometimes you may not even know what you have until data evolves and an option may come up as well for a patient who is undergoing a standard treatment now and the implications of a different target may be identified later on. Really, when when we look at this, we want to be able to have a, a broad-based informational platform to start with so that we can interpret as best as possible what the what the best treatments are going to be for our patients and apply those. My understanding is that you are participating in clinical research studies on new lung cancer therapies for patients that have gene fusions in EGFR and in ALK. And you, you mentioned EGFR and ALK at the beginning. How do these mutations drive cancer? And you know, more broadly, in addition to EGFR and ALK, how common are gene fusions in the context of cancer? So there are different types of mutations, certain genetic mutations or fusions that can occur in lung cancers that are considered oncogenic drivers, where that particular cancer becomes addicted to that mutation, if you will, to allow that cancer to grow and spread and avoid traditional cell death regulation. When those driver mutations are identified, though, then that is something that the cancer itself is very heavily reliant upon, and targeting those particular oncogenic drivers will allow for arresting cellular proliferation as well as inducing apoptosis for some but not all of the cells. The mechanisms otherwise for inhibition generally fall along the range of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but there are other types of investigational agents as well, such as bispecific antibodies and other more traditional antibodies that are trying to shut down that particular fusion protein or mutation function. In addition to those gene fusions, my understanding is that there are additional mutations in the context of lung cancer that are present, but they're present at, one would say, a lower prevalence. So if you looked at a population of individuals with lung cancer, you might not find as many of these mutations. And what does that say about the technology? I mean, how does that situation impact on the technology and the means to detect some of these mutations? If we take a look at the overall averages of the population in the United States, approximately 30% of patients who have a new lung cancer diagnosed are going to have some type of a targetable mutation based on estimates. The majority of those are going to be ALK or EGFR. 
But then there are others, as you're referring to, that occur at lower frequencies. For example, the RET rearrangements occur estimated around 1% of patients with lung cancer. NTRAC is about the same. So far fewer patients will have those rearrangements, but they're still present. And for those patients, if you can identify that mutation, there are highly active drugs that are also well-tolerated that can help to control those cancers for quite some time. That data is still evolving, but there are multiple agents that are being investigated and that are already into practice as well to treat those tumors. So different fusions can occur. RET can have different types of fusions in the proteins. NTRAC is the same. There are multiple fusions of NTRAC that are possibilities, and even in ALK, we tend to think of a classic single fusion, but there are, there are others as well. Testing from a medical oncology perspective, the testing needs to be sensitive enough and accurate enough to be able to look and detect all of the options for a patient. So that's where testing gets prioritized in and where testing that involves both DNA and RNA may have that advantage over what people tend to think of with maybe some of the more old-fashioned fish tests or, or other things that are Single very specific. Single gene PCR exactly. or something like that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how RNA sequencing has a potential to overcome some of those technical challenges? So the addition of RNA sequencing into a detection mechanism does have the potential to be able to identify other types of gene fusions that have reached essentially transcription and functionality and can sometimes identify different types of pairings that are not noted with just purely a DNA analysis. There's a tremendous amount of heterogeneity in how mutations are tested for both in the United States and globally. Our institution has incorporated both the DNA and RNA sequencing into the upfront testing with a reflex test at the time of diagnosis of an advanced lung cancer. Then all patients are tested with reflex testing for NGS to be able to allow for a timely identification of any potential targetable mutations. So that has significant advantage because the data then may be resulting either at by the time the patient is seeing the medical oncologist or very shortly thereafter, which helps to speed up the time to treatment for these patients for whom time matters Which so is always much. the goal, right? Right. I'm pretty sure that there are not targeted therapies for all of these potential mutations that are out there, right? So from a patient point of view, and I guess from an oncologist's point of view as well, what's the utility in, for example, testing for a mutation where there may not be a drug that you can take off the shelf that is targeted for that specific mutation? What, what would be the benefit? Well, that's a very good question. I think that to be able to answer that, I will first say that we may not have a target for it now. And I will use for that a very classic example of KRAS mutation in lung cancer. So KRAS is a mutation that occurs in lung cancer. It's found in approximately 25% of patients who have lung cancer diagnosed in the United States, non-small cell lung cancer, I'll be specific. And KRAS was considered an untargetable mutation. So it was also previously thought to be mutually exclusive of any other sensitizing mutation. And so there was an argument for a while, and I would say a short while, that 
maybe pathologists should start with just KRAS testing if they found that stop right there and not evaluate further. That argument has fallen by the wayside as we do understand now that there can be other concurrent mutations, but you will only find them if you look for them and that other treatments may be applied. But also, as now over the last 10 years or so, we we look at KRAS and consider that this was something that would not be treatable or, or druggable. Fast forward, and now there are multiple studies that are coming along looking at different agents that are doing exactly that. So now we can go back and take a look at this file of patients for whom we thought that there might be nothing for that target and be able to say, you know, in your next line of treatment, I may have something else to offer. Wow, that's super hopeful. So there's a there's a tremendous amount of scientific advance that occurs all the time. The genomics technologies that make it possible to assess these mutations genome-wide, can you talk a little bit about how those have impacted on how oncologists define how they diagnose, how they basically treat cancer today? It loops back to just how we consider a diagnosis to begin with where years ago a lung cancer would be diagnosed purely as a small cell or non-small cell, and then things evolved to be an adenocarcinoma or a squamous cell carcinoma, really just like in breast cancer, where a diagnosis of invasive ductal adenocarcinoma is not an acceptable diagnosis any longer. That sentence needs to be completed in terms of ER and PR and HER2 expression, and other cancers have the same in lung cancer. The sentence now cannot be just even adenocarcinoma, but needs to be adenocarcinoma with a PDL status of X and a mutational profile of this. And that is the sentence because it all fits in with the identification of the tumor and what may be able to be applied. We think of lung cancer and that's hundreds or maybe thousands of different kinds of cancers really that started wow. in the lung. And we're just, we're that just level now of complexity. being able to understand that. And I think we're still just scratching the surface on truly understanding the level of complexity that is there. And that's the case as well for other types of tumors. As we look at this and understand more, pancreatic cancers, colon cancers, esophageal, you name it, as we understand more of the genetic makeup of these tumors, they may not all have a tyrosine kinase inhibitor targetable treatment, but that genetic array of alterations, damages, adaptations will help us be able to unravel a little better how we may most effectively tackle that treatment or that cancer, what it may be vulnerable to. I know it's a bit out of your your specialty, but are other diseases similar or is cancer really unique in that it stands alone in, in the level of complexity and heterogeneity in the, in, the, in the phenotype? That's a really good question because I spend so much of my time living and breathing <laughs> cancer part. I don't really tend to think about you know, what happens with small vessel vascular disease. <laughs> enough, or, yeah. or, but I would say even if we look at something like autoimmune right. diseases, which are this just mind-boggling array of different things that can happen when our immune systems are activated and the uniqueness of our immune systems and the exposures that may have triggered that particular issue to disease to be developing. I think that probably there are other diseases that are that are heterogeneous as well, but probably not many to the degree that cancer is. I think cancer stands alone in that surely by what 
our bodies are bombarded with as we live this life and the different susceptibilities that we have that are a factor of those exposures and our genetic makeup along the germline and everything else that all the all the different subtleties that go into that. A lot of the people that I've had on the show have talked about some of the biggest challenges in genomics and applying it in the clinical space. And invariably, everyone talks about the challenge, the value and the opportunity for sure, but the challenge as well in educating, first of all, clinicians about the technology, about genomics analysis, but then also educating patients, right? So that patients are able to make valid decisions and they understand. So on the one hand, what do you think oncologists and clinicians really should know about genomics analysis? And what do you think patients really need to know? I come from the line of thinking that more information is better. My conversations with patients are, are very focused on explanation and education about, about what's going on. And the more knowledge that patients have, then the more they're able to seek out further information for themselves and ask questions that can help to drive that conversation forward. There are numerous examples of how that partnership has really helped move science forward. In terms of clinicians as well, all oncologists need to have an understanding of the importance of molecular testing. It does not mean that you have to have a memorized list of everything out there. I mean, That's probably good news to most people. <laughs> right. I mean, if you tried to quiz me on what the relative risk mutations are in acute leukemia, I'm not going to be able to get very far in that list. But I know how to look it up and how to find that information once I'm given that. That's the key that we all need to be able to have is when provided with the information about what those mutations are, we need to be able to have the knowledge base to say, let's seek out what the answers are for that particular array of, of mutations and be able to apply that information. The nice part, though, is that really when one is obtaining a, a comprehensive genomic profile in a patient, then many times that's already coming with a reference list provided oh, really? for the physicians about what the meaning of those mutations can be. For example, what we have at the system at Providence in Portland is a is there's a reference list that comes with that helps to provide information about what may be a sensitizing or a resistance mutation, what types of links to what types of therapies may or may not be activated or be active for those mutations, as well as a list of relevant clinical trials that that may be applicable for that patient. So those types of of reference lists that are a companion to the piece are, are really invaluable, both to the clinicians as well as to the patients. But patients love getting their hands on that. Really? And looking through that information. Wow, that's interesting. How do you see the future of the genomics technologies, genomics analysis? How do you see that evolving and continuing to impact on oncology? What, is, what does the future look like? What are you excited about? I see the field continuing to grow and expand. And we may look at a 170 gene panel now and think of that as astronomic compared with a five gene panel or something, <laughs> which was really fancy compared to a one and then one and then one in the past. And then we look at that and now we're going to the 500 or a thousand gene panels. But I think that really this is an area where when I think about it, the visual that comes to my mind is this is the big data. This is big data processing and it's only going to grow. So we are going to need to drive the technology to be able to help process that information because it's not going to only be about 
as I said, the targetable mutations, but it's going to be about understanding what's happening that's affecting the immune contexture in that particular patient as well. So understanding what maybe the baseline genetics are that are driving the immune system, as well as being able to interpret what's happening in terms of tumor or antigen suppression and what's happening in terms of other types of exposures that may lead to activation or tumor recognition. That's going to require automated learning, machine learning types of technologies. And we have to be able to create those readouts again before the patient dies. That's the unfortunate part that stares us in the face with all of this as we look at what the technology is, is that there's a real person on the other side of that whose life depends on having that information and having that information be accurate and be fast enough. That clock ticking is what's going to drive, I think, the development of the technology, the overlap of the of the technical side of the genetic analysis and the computer side of those analytics to create leaps that we haven't really imagined yet. I think that in 10 years, a decade from now, we're going to have an entirely different type of readout than we do. And we'll be able to look back now and be very excited about how far we've come. That's great. Rachel, I I can't thank you enough for taking some of your time and educating us really about how these analysis techniques are are impacting oncology. It's a really hopeful picture that you paint for the future. And and I I can't wait until cancer becomes a, a disease that no one's afraid of anymore. Thanks for your time and thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope you liked today's show. And if you did, why not subscribe to the Genomics Podcast? We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can even ask your favorite smart speaker to play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Brian Pining, Technical Director of clinical genomics at the Providence Cancer Institute. We'll be discussing the role of omics technologies in understanding cancer and tumor pathology, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>